Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. Today's episode of Full Potential Now is part two of Ted's interview with tattoo pioneer Freddie Negretti, as well as author Steve Jones and poet Luis Rodriguez. If you haven't yet, please, please listen to part one on iTunes or fullpotentialnow.org. You really need to hear that one first. Stay tuned. So what is rock bottom? What's your rock bottom? What's my rock bottom? I mean, really, what does it take for us to make a significant change in our life? And if we're in the throes of an addiction, what will it take for some of us to move into recovery? I mean, we know relapse is part of the picture. Addiction is a chronic relapsing disease. So if it's a chronic relapsing disease, What really is the thing that can push somebody into recovery and a recovery that's meaningful and a recovery that has passion and fire behind it to move forward and enhance that recovery and not fall back into addiction? Is it simply like a cognitive exercise where I just make up my mind to say, yes, now is the time I'm going to get into recovery? Is it a profound spiritual experience where maybe I'm at my my end point down on my hands and knees, crying, and I pray to God, help me through this, and my prayers are answered. Or maybe it's just a mix of the two. I guess after all these years in the field, I'm not exactly sure. I wish I could tell you. I wish I could just tell you that everybody has to hit the profound rock bottom and have a spiritual epiphany, and then they'll move forward. But I also know family intervention and consequences for the person who's stuck in the throes of an addiction can actually move them closer to getting help. I'm not exactly sure really what's the answer, but I do know for sure rock bottoms vary and some rock bottoms can be pretty profound. How do you think, as, as being the writer and getting to know him so well, how do you think he was able to kind of work through all that grief? I mean, losing that many close people, what do you think is like, the, what was his secret to kind of get through it, just from your own perspective? Having well, he talked about that, and obviously I asked him about that. I, I mean, that was part of the process. You know, I can't... I, you know, I wouldn't be able to write the book if I if I didn't know what he went through and how he, you know, how he was able to deal with that because it was a very very grim situation that he was in when he was in the county jail. Essentially, he'd he'd he'd, he'd lost his young younger son Lorenzo in the gang conflict. He had no contact with his son, his surviving son Isaiah, who was who was obviously outside and couldn't visit him that often. And you know he was also essentially, you know, there was a very good possibility that he was going to die in there. There were, you know, and the people around him, you know, whether it was the you know the sheriffs, they all kind of just thought, wow, you know, he's this is not looking really very good for him. As soon as I got to the county jail, they pulled me out of the 
you know, the processing line and everything. And they put me in a, a dorm uh, with, with the paisas. The paisas are the undocumented workers, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, in the county jail, they do all the work. <laughs> and and everybody else is pretty much locked down. But they have these dorms just for for paisas. And they do all the work in the jail, you know. And so they put me in that Paisa dorm, but I was really sick. I remember when they, when they came and got me, I was laying in a crowded cell with about 50 people, you know, it was just shoulder to shoulder, but I was laying on the floor trying to get air from under the door because I just couldn't breathe, you know. Oh. And they came, they're like, what are you doing down there? Come on. And then when they were trying to walk me to the area, I could only take like three steps and I had to stop and I was gasping for the air and they're like, dude, what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, I got asthma. I just, I lied to them having an asthma attack, you know, but, um, <clears throat> you know, the jail doctor there, uh, you know, when, when, uh, he checked me, he was like, I, I, I don't see how you can go on without a heart transplant, you know? So, and that's how sick I was. And then I had a heart attack. So, and I ended up having three heart attacks. But after the second heart attack, you know, and then they would take you across uh, the way to the county general hospital. There was a jail ward up there, you know. So um, I'd have a heart attack, and then they take me over there to that, to that jail ward, and they give me all kinds of meds and everything, and then send me back to the jail in a wheelchair, you know. And then the sheriffs would come down and get me out of the hospital and put me back in that dorm. But... After the second, um, you know, I was so depressed, you know, because here I was, you know, I, I couldn't lay down, I couldn't sleep, you know, I couldn't breathe. Um, my, my chest was constantly in pain. I just felt I was certain that I was going to die, you know, and, and um, I remembered, you know, and I, that's a terrible feeling to see everybody around you laughing and going on with their life. And you sitting right there dying and knowing that you brought it upon yourself. You know, it's just like, I did this to me, you know. I'm like this because of me. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I remembered a, a story from the Bible about this king. And uh, the prophet went to the king and told him, you know what, um, you're going to die. You know, your time is up. Get your affairs in order because your time is up. And the king went to God, he went over the prophet's head and went to God himself and just asked God for more time. And God gave him 15 more years. <laughs> you know? And I don't know why, but that story was sticking out of my head. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to ask God for more time. And I needed to get to a place in the jail where I could be alone, where I could have this prayer. And, you know, I, I've always prayed and people always pray when they're in trouble and God help me and everything. But I felt different. I was like, I'm going to have a talk with God, you know. Mm. And uh, so I made it up those stairs. It took me about a half an hour to go up two little flights of stairs. And um, and I remember my prayer was, uh, God, you know, I, I'm not going to make any promises to you because every promise I've made I've broken. But all I'm asking is for a little more time so that I won't die in this wretched county jail, that I could have a chance to redeem myself and be an example to my other son, you know, who's still living. 
And, um, you know, so I, I really felt like I talked to God, you know, I felt different. But that night was the worst night for me. I suffered all night long and I, I couldn't lay back and I couldn't breathe. And in the morning, I had another heart attack and they took me to the hospital. So <clears throat> I, I should have felt like my request was denied, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was funny, you know, on the way to the hospital, I felt completely different. And I remember even telling the ambulance driver, because this is already the third time the ambulance driver is taking me from the jail to the hospital. And um, he's going, you have a legitimate reason, you know, for going. And they're giving me the nitroglycerin and setting me up with the IV and all that. And I was like, dude, you know what? You're so cool. I'll tell you what. When I get out of here, you go to Shamrock Tattoo and I'm going to give you a free tattoo. <laughs> but, you know, I really felt different. And I think it was because I, you know, you know, they, they always say it's impossible to please God without faith. And, you know, with faith, you could, you know, move mountains and all that. Um, but I felt like all of a sudden I had this tremendous amount of faith. And I believe that God gave me that faith, you know, and. The weeks that followed, I made a miraculous recovery, you know. Um, so did you, ever need, and, did you ever have to get the heart transplant? No. No, and, and, and in fact, you know, I remember, uh, you know, they, so when they sent me back to the jail, at that time I was in the hospital the longest. I was there for about three weeks. Um, but they were like, okay, we're going to send you back to the hospital. I mean, send you back to the jail. It seems these meds that you're taking are really working good. They had me on like 15 different medications, you know. And um, <clears throat> so I went back to the jail. And then every Tuesday, they would take me back to the hospital and the doctors would check me, you know. So all of a sudden, I could lay down, you know, and sleep. I could breathe. Um I played a little basketball on the roof, you know. Uh, I started doing push-ups. And I remember I told the doctor that I was, you know, doing push-ups. And he was like, what? You, you can do push-ups? And I was like, yeah, you know. And he's like, listen to my heart. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to have you come back and we're going to redo all the tests, you know, the echogram and all that stuff. <clears throat> so then the following week, I retook all the tests. And then the week after that, I went back to the hospital and there's a little group of doctors right there, and they're all listening to my heart. And the doctor was saying, yeah, we've, we've all heard of people's hearts repairing themselves, but, um, you know, none of us had seen it. And so, um, you know, and now he wants to show me my chart. You know, I never, he never did that before. He's going, look at this. Your heart was, like, enlarged nearly out of the cavity, and it was beating so erratically that, your lungs and your liver were in failure because your body wasn't getting any oxygen, you know? And uh, now your heart has gone down. It was beating at under 10%. Now it's beating at 30%, which 30 to 70% is normal. And, uh, and I told him, you know what? I think God healed my heart and gave me more time in life. And he goes, I think you're body healed your heart and your heart has given you more time <laughs> and i'm like whatever dude <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? uh, but you know what that was the beginning of a of a you know such a miraculous time for me 
things turn things turned round, and um, he managed to get a slot uh, because uh, the the actually the district attorney actually wanted to send him down, would keep him in jail essentially for a few more years, but he managed to get place in this treatment center, the beta shooter treatment center. And the way he talks about it, uh, you know, either in the book or openly, and he'll talk talk to you about about this, is that he knew that this was the completely the end of the road for him, that there was just no way back into into using him physically that would have been too dangerous for him because of this heart condition. And he, he'd reached the end of the line and he decided to completely embrace their program, which was a mixture of um, Jewish spirituality and uh, psychotherapy in the 12 step program. And he basically said, uh, he said, I gave myself completely to that program. I would go to everything and, uh, and so he, he, he dealt with things like the death of his son and he, he, you know, he confronted all those things either in the groups or on one-to-one therapy. You know, I, I recovered from, you know, my heart failure. Um, I didn't have to go back to prison. Uh, God made a way for me to to go into the rehab, the Beit Shuva. I went in there with an open mind and a ter- determination to learn and to do the work that they asked of me because I felt like I was never going to use again, but I just needed to learn how. And um, it's been 10 years now. You know, and while I do, I do have high blood pressure and, you know, and I still take my meds and stuff, but, um, you got more time. I got more time. I don't know if it's 15 years. You should probably (laughs) ask for 30. (laughs) I should have asked for 30. (laughs) Whatever the case. Yeah. The last years of my life have been so amazing that if I were to die tomorrow, I'd I would I would feel still feel blessed and be happy with the wonderful life that I've lived and especially these last ten years you know because I have a new love for my my work and a new focus on my art and uh, and you know trying and you know I, all my life I've been a gangster not a nice guy you know and I'm I'm trying to be a good person you know and God is helping me with that you know it's just. A complete turnaround. It's been the best ten years of my life. I'm I'm like moved by this, man. This typically doesn't happen to me on a podcast. I mean, you had like a spiritual experience that yes. changed your life. And maybe there's a lot of people out there that will say like they'll doubt it, like the doctor, your heart healed you or whatever. Right. Um, I know. Uh, I thought about I thought about that people would say I'm crazy or I'm making up stories or whatever, and that's that's fine. You know, um, I just feel that I need to talk about it. You know, because that's what I went through, and uh, in addition to you know people doubting or not believing or whatever, I've met plenty of other people that have had similar stories that have been touched in a powerful way by God, that have been healed. 
um, that have been saved from certain circumstances, you know, so um, it, I need to tell my story. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I kind of think Maybe it'll help. Maybe it'll help somebody. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm thinking about. Cause like, I mean, I'll be honest, man. I mean, most people probably would have written you off just saying this guy is just going to be addicted to drugs, continue to just kind of go through prison and eventually just kind of die from multiple heart attacks. And I think maybe like, and maybe you can comment on this a, a little bit if you can connect with it, but you know, there's people out there that maybe haven't lived the same type of life that you lived, you know, like they might be like, Hey, I wasn't a gangbanger. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I'm more like this. But in the end, man, you separated out. It's like you're hitting rock bottom. You're at the worst point in your life and you have to make a decision about opening your heart to something. And I mean, for some people it'll be God, but I've heard other stories, people just opening up more to like recovery and what their life actually could be. Right. And I think like this right, is right. really a story of hope. Yeah, it is. And and I, I realize, you know, and I, you know, especially working with a lot of young people and people in recovery, one of the difficult things that is you know, to grasp in the twelve steps is the con- whole concept of God and a higher power. But <clears throat> I just encourage people to give it a chance. Just give it a chance. And and uh, if you're willing, then God is able. You know, it's... Uh, wow. Wow, man. This has been uh, just... It's just been great spending time with you, Freddie. Thank you. Thank this you. This is kind Likewise. of the benefits of being a podcast host. You get to meet all these like great people. And I think every host has kind of moved me in some sort of way, but you really moved me a lot just in terms of, you know, I think part of my deal, man, I've been an alcohol and drug counselor for like 25 years, probably sat in the room with 20,000 drug addicts, alcoholics, whatever. I think they're my greatest teachers in the end, man. And I'm kind of like at this stage more into what's going to inspire people. What's going to move people towards recovery, towards the fact that, hey, you still do have a chance at a good life. You still have a chance to, like, use your gifts in life. And how can we help you and support you to get there? And there's sometimes young people setting out at, they're so young, they're like you were. You know, like they haven't had the guidance, their life, you know, people would say, oh, they've had a hard life. But they haven't had the right mentors, the right kind of parents, the right kind of direction. They've kind of fallen into this pattern. And, you know, they're young. They kind of don't think long term a whole lot. But, like, this is like the story of, like, hope. Like, you actually could. And if we actually began to, like, really listen to people and help people, like, really understand themselves, understand their gifts and their strengths and that you can have a different life and then give them a pathway to do it, um, that's really what I'm all about, man. Yeah, that's one of the things I really try to encourage the young people in my group. It's like <clears throat> I, I show them the difference between and the results of uh, of using 
and you know how great my life has been now especially with our movie tattoo nation and my book and things like that and and um try to you know encourage them you know just imagine if you can grasp this now while you're young you know yeah uh embrace this uh recovery and this uh journey of sobriety and what great things can come about in your life you know because good things happen when you're sober what strikes me is just one of the things that strikes me is this experience you had of kind of figuring out hey I'm pretty good at something So what do we know about what actually works when somebody tries to get in recovery? I mean, substance abuse recovery involves more than just clearing drugs or alcohol from our body. I mean, overcoming the disease of addiction often requires a deep understanding of the origins of substance abuse, maybe the motivating factors in recovery and the resistance to healing. What's interesting is of all things, art therapy or the use of art can serve as a vehicle or a psychological component which can actually help move someone through recovery, almost providing an emotional outlet, and in some cases, maybe a life direction. What I'm saying is that neither one of us, I mean, both of us, our homeboys that were heavy duty involved, they did 30, 40 years in prison. They were heroin addicts for 30, 40 years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, we were still yeah. struggling. We had our relapses. We had our backs and downs, ups and downs. But we were basically we were in and out of jails, maybe. But we were really not in that world anymore. It was just our own personal issues that we had to go back. And he, he had his. Um, and then, of course, the art kept saving them. Just like for me, the writing uh, it was became writing. I, I let go of the art because, to be honest with you, he really was a talented artist. I really wasn't. <laughs> I did all those murals, but I really wasn't that good compared to him. And um, but my writing was really where I think my skills and my and my um, passions were. So that helped me through a lot of this. Um, so, you, so I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So you really, it sounds like Luis, that you know this artistic side. I mean, Freddie as well, but you was probably you know, murals first and then writing, yeah. that that kind of, would you say that that's kind of the thread was always the outlet for you? Yeah. And I think it saved my life. I mean, I, people say that, you know, but I can testify to that. Um, I think, I mean, okay, when you're on heroin and I was on it for so long, it's the hardest drug to leave. Um, I know there are worse drugs out there, but heroin is one of the hardest because it is so compelling and of course it's very painful to leave the only thing that could get me to leave and there was no recovery programs in East LA there was no methadone there was nothing but cold turkey it's the only way to get out and the last time I was in jail I was uh, in the county jail and I was facing six years minimum six years in prison and I decided I don't want this life no more I was prepared to go to prison but I didn't want to be part of the the prison gang, I didn't want to be part of the Chicano crazy life anymore. And so I started my heroin withdrawals there. Uh, it was just me saying, I need to change. I can't do this anymore. You know what I'm saying? You, when you're tired of being tired, you know? Uh, yeah. 
I yeah. want to dive a little bit deeper here, because yeah. I think sure. it's so important for other people to hear. Yeah. Just, I mean, your side of things. I mean, because there's a lot of people that reach that same point, yeah. but they can't. They might yeah, go full no. Turkey and go for a while, but they go back, and it's probably even some people you know that couldn't. Yeah, they might have reached that same decision point you did. But what do you think was the difference? I mean, what do you, for you, what was the thing that, was it just like enough is enough kind of thing, or is it something different than that? Yeah, it was that, but I think I also had the advantage. I was blessed with, like I said, this mentor, a couple of teachers, people who cared for me that in my in our neighborhoods, both Freddy's and mine, there wasn't too many people who cared. But when there was, they went all out. I was one of the people that got helped, even though I went back and forth. I was in and out of jails, and they kept coming. My parents would threw me out. I had no more homies. Who was almost all of them had died, my close homies. And uh, they were the only ones. And I told somebody once asked me that I get scared straight. And I was never scared. I was never scared of heroin, never scared of prison, never scared of dying. I was ready to die. I wanted to die so badly. Only I wanted to do it in a blaze, blaze of glory, you know, die for the gang, you know. And that wasn't happening. The thing that helped me is what I call cared straight. I was cared straight. People cared for me. People who helped me. And... Uh, when I ended up in the county jail, they were the only ones that helped me. Not in, I ended up not doing the state prison term because they wrote letters on my behalf. People went to court. The judge said it was the first time he ever saw anybody do that. This is in 1973. I was 18 years old, and I was prepared to go to prison. The judge gave me a break, gave me time served in the county jail. And I walked out with my first heroin withdrawals there and walked out and said, I'm never going back. I'm never going back. I said, I had a little opening. In my life, a door opened and I had to go through it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, so, so then, yeah. yeah then you, you, you went through it and then is that where the alcohol kind of comes in? So you, yeah, which is the, the drug sad the game part. Or? This is the sad part. I don't know if you know, but people who are on heroin when they're teens, there's actually millions of people in this country, but most of them get out of it. I don't know if you're aware of that, but alcoholism ends up being number one way that they go. Yeah, they sort of like flip-flop yeah. the addiction. Yeah, um, and that's what's bad. Now, for me, it was like, well, at least, see, I'll tell you why heroin was was bad for me, not because I didn't care for it. I loved heroin. I would have stayed in heroin my whole life. I didn't want to be owned by the gang, by the police, and by the drug, and that's what happens. Heroin, you're owned by everybody. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's uh, a great I, way to put it, Luis. Yeah, I was uh, homeless in the streets. When I was 15, I was using heroin intravenously, and I was stealing, I was mugging people, and I saw people do the most horrendous things for a fix. And maybe there's a part of me, I was in the abyss, but I couldn't fall all the way down. You know what I'm saying? There's yeah. a part of me that kept saying, man, I I just don't want to be owned, man. And then when you're in the jails, the county jail in particular, and the, and the Mexican mafia prison gang, which both me and Freddie had to deal with one time or the other, tries to own you. You're a tattooed heroin-using gang member. You're owned by them. They control everything. I was like, nothing scared me, but that was something I didn't want. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you so, were kind of ready to have your own I was life. ready to go. Now, the other thing I think is like people say when you bottom out. You know, I think bottoming out, everybody bottoms out. And sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. But something has to happen when you bottom out. Some kind of grace has to come in there. You know what I mean? Some kind of epiphany that uh, it's not just bottom, obviously. 
something has to be there, like the door opening that you didn't know, and then you have that little bit of courage that says, I'm going to go through the door. Um, that's why a lot of people don't make it. People say, well, go through this, go through this program. They haven't quite found that grace or epiphany in their life. And it might be just an echo of it. You know what I'm saying? But something that they can grab onto. Because if you don't got something to grab onto, you're just going to fall back. That is, I've never heard it put that way, but you sell it, said it so eloquently, Louise. It's part about like, like, because we always hear that, like, that person hasn't rock bottom enough, or right. when they hit their rock bottom, they're going to get it. But you're saying the rock bottom is one thing, but you right. have to have that little doorway that you see that you didn't know was there, and yeah. have that epiphany, and then have enough courage to walk through it. Yeah, I mean, just like like you say, tired of being tired, but also there's got to be a thread pull you through. If you don't have something else, it's going to be very difficult. I'm not saying it can't be done; it's just difficult. You know, when I quit drinking. Uh, I had several epiphanies, but one of them was with my wife, who's now been married for 30 years now. And she saw me through a really terrible drinking period. At the very end there, it was really bad. And she went with me to a bar. I used to love going to bars. I didn't really drink at home because the kids were there. My teenage son, who was in gangs and trouble, I just didn't want to do it at home. But I would spend every night in these bars. And one night, my poor wife shows up. And um, she never been to a bar with me, really. She just never came. That's not her thing. She's not a gang girl. She's just a really sweet, beautiful person who married a pretty messed up guy. And she saw me at my worst. And um, and what happened is she was really mad because I started flirting with other women. I started, you know, acting like you do when you're drunk. You're a mutated person. You don't care about what anybody thinks or what anybody says. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I forgot that she was there. I didn't pay her care no more. And she got so mad. But she could have done several things. She could have walked away, thrown something at me, found another guy. If she was my first wife, she would have found another guy. <laughs> but you know what she did? She stood on top. She went on top of the bar and started dancing. And it was an angry dancing. And you know what? I, 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 told, I told my wife, listen, you shouldn't have had to do that. No woman should ever have to do that. But I don't, I don't know how to express to her how powerful it was. How powerful it was, you know, to see her just dance like that. Dance for me, dance for the life. Maybe saying, look at me, look what you're losing. It was, it was a moment of great deep grace for me. And I was realizing that I was also losing my kids. My oldest son was in gangs and drugs, just like I was. I had two younger boys that were needing me, or at least one younger boy from my, my fourth son hadn't been born yet and a daughter who was in bad shape I had these three kids at home and I wasn't being a father to them and I had this beautiful wife and everything just slapped me across the face you know what I'm saying yeah and, it, yeah yeah continue yeah and then I just realized I I gotta stop this I and I was trying to do it by myself I went to um NAAA and then I ended up in another recovery program in Chicago which was very helpful and then pretty much Soon after, I just decided to go the Native American way. Uh, my mother, Starumara Native from Chihuahua, Mexico, which is a tribe that's uh, linked to the Hopi, Pueblo, Shoshone, Arapaho, different tribes in the U.S. And the Native American Center in Chicago has a great connection with Mexican tribes, unlike a lot of Native American centers. And they also have a great recovery program where they use a sweat lodge. And, oh, nice. uh, yeah, so I started doing that. That was the most helpful. 
Uh, I'm nothing against other meetings. I tell people I go, I go to NA meetings where people need help. Sometimes I will go to meetings myself, like I was in Madrid earlier this year, and I ended up going to an NA meeting because sometimes the only people you can talk to are people who've been through it. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and you yeah. need to do that. But really, it's the Native American uh, recovery work that really helped me get through the drinking. And I've and I've never gone back. And at 24 years, um, I've been sober. If somebody's listening to this podcast right now and they're using, maybe they're even in gang life, man, they're young, they're, they're like you way back in the day, what would be your words of wisdom or what would you want them to know? Yeah, well, I would want them to know um, uh, the, the pitfalls of drug addiction and, you know, gang life, the criminal life. You know, um, when I look back on my life and look at every car crash, every family problem, uh, you know, breakup, jail time, all, all these different things, problems that I've had in my life. And I look back and I see that, you know, drugs and alcohol we're always a factor in everything and you don't see it at the time when you're addicted you know you just oh you know i i lost my phone or i crashed my car or, you know whatever i got arrested you know but you don't see that <clears throat> the involvement of drugs and alcohol and and all the negative things that happen in your life and um if you could just take drugs and alcohol out of the equation you know you're you're taking more than half of all the bad things, you know, because life is tough and things are difficult. Times are going to come, but uh, <clears throat> if you take drugs and alcohol out of the equation, what a great life you can have, you know. Um, and I would admonish people to, you know, to just give it a chance, you know, taste it and see if it's good, you know. I love that. I love that, Friday. Um, what was a recent struggle over this past year that you had and how did you overcome it? Um, well, I guess there's always, there's always struggles, you know, yeah. uh, they're, they're always going to come. Um, you know, things have been going pretty good for me. So, um, it's hard for me to to pinpoint any one thing that really brought me down. Okay. And maybe something will come my way, but, you know, uh, I, I guess <clears throat> in general, you know, just it's, it's a struggle to, you know, maintain, you know, the practices in, in sobriety, you know. Like the discipline, uh, the discipline to keep yeah, the discipline to keep doing it, and kind of like there's this like kind of people describe kind of like a slingshot, like all right, I've been disciplined enough. <laughs> yeah, there's, and most people that go out, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that relapse that are in my groups and stuff like that, and I have them share about it, but it's always the same thing, you know, like, well, you know, I stopped going to meetings, you know, and I didn't pray, or you know. I, 
I just stopped doing what I was doing that helped me, you know, to continue in sobriety, you know. So and that's always a struggle. I always want to be, um, you know, focused on that as well, you know. So, you know, the, the discipline is a struggle. So, Yeah, for, for, for many. I've heard it a lot. And just exactly what you're saying is when I think about um, – People talking about relapsing, that is kind of like, I would say, a number one is I kind of stopped going to meetings. I kind of stopped doing all the stuff that helped me get sober. And I lost some of that structure and that discipline. And then I slowly began to kind of walk back towards, I guess we'd say, the dark side. And so right. that's why I really am advocate of like meetings and just developing like that sober support system because like, if you establish a healthy, good, sober support system, they will be, and you're with those people, they get to know you so well, and they can begin to help you identify when you begin to drift away. Right. And the quicker you spot the drift, you know, the more you drift, the harder it is to sort of drift back into the fold. So I'm having those strong support systems and those people that will be honest with you, I think, and hey, you're talking different. Where have you been? Um, sort of like, I guess, proverbially call you on your shit. Right. Um, and it's amazing that people in the program, they do care, you know, like that. that's why the meetings are so important and the connection with other people that are on the same journey as you, you know, because <clears throat> we uplift each other and take care of each other and uh, understand each other. So it's just... That you're right. You're really right about that support system. Thank you. Well, um, I got two questions left. One was, um, it's what we call as our speed round. So I ask you like five kind of random, easy questions, and you just give your responses to it. Okay. Are you game? Yeah. All right, Freddie. I love it. Jumping in. Um, what's your favorite food? Uh, Mexican food. Mexican. What kind of Mexican food, though? Uh, Baja. Baja. Yeah, like Baja, California, like grilled uh, seafood, all that. Nice, nice. All right. Um, back. Best Mexican restaurant to go to in East LA. Uh, King Tacos. King Tacos. But you got to watch it because if you don't put the brakes on it, they'll, they'll spice it up. So, you know, sometimes your food's so hot, you can't even eat it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always right. I'm always like mild, make it mild, mild. <laughs> so maybe this could be a shout out to the Instagram world. If they're, if they're following you and they hear this podcast, that if you go to King Tacos and you really start, you get the heat and you really start sweating, take a photo and send it to Freddie. <laughs> yeah. Tag me in it. Tag, tag, me in tag it. you in it. Yeah. Um, what's one of the best tattoos you've ever done? Uh, you know, probably the tattoo, or definitely the most significant tattoo was uh, the back piece that I did in the late 70s that I got one tattoo artist of the year. 
because there was a lot of innovation in that tattoo. And it was also the first attempt by a tattoo artist to um, do color realism. You know, that black and gray realism was our thing, but nobody had tried to create realism with color. And I tried doing that in that tattoo. So um, that tattoo will always remain my favorite tattoo. Thank you. Uh, worst tattoo? Or one of <laughs> well, worst tattoo experience is the one that I shared. All right. That's, and you got to <laughs> send me that photo of that one. <laughs> I'll, search, I'll search for it. I see it online all the time. All right. Um, and then maybe just uh, some of the famous celebrities you've done work for. Oh, I always have trouble when I'm listing them off, you know. I don't know, uh, Danny Trejo, Billy Bob Thornton, uh, Marilyn Manson, uh, Boy George, um, a whole long list of rappers, uh, sports people, uh, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan. Um, well, I saw Dave Navarro. Uh, Dave Navarro, I tattooed him. Uh, It's a a long list. list, (laughs) Yeah. And then the final question is, weirdest experience ever doing a tattoo? It could be Uh, a place you did it. It could just be whatever, if you have have anything in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of uh, weird experiences. I, I think uh, maybe one of the weirdest was uh, this guy that came in and he wanted a good size tattoo on his shoulder. And so, you know, I got the stencil on and everything. <clears throat> and I made about um, uh, three quarters of an inch of a line, you know, kind of going in an L shape. And, and he passed out on me, you know. So it took about five minutes or so to recover. And then, you know, so we started again, and uh, he passed out on me again. And uh, same thing to recover, and then I started tattooing him. He's going, wait, i got to go to the bathroom. And he fell and fainted on the way to the bathroom. That was three. And uh, then we, you know, started again, and, uh, and he passed out again. So we're already an hour and a half into this thing. <laughs> so... The last, the last time when I finally said, okay, <laughs> uh, you know, I was about to start doing it. And before my needle even hit his skin, he passed out. So <clears throat> I was like, uh, and th- after that time, he was like, I guess I should have shared that I have a deathly fear of needles. Oh. And I go, you know I I just don't think that we're going to be able to make it through this. <laughs> so he left with a backwards L on his arm. <laughs> I guess if he looks in the mirror. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Well, Freddie, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the Full Potential Now podcast. Um, you moved me, man. And uh, we just want to salute you for being the kind of person you are right now. Thank you very much. All right.
Cool. How do you think it went? Great. Great. Thank you. Uh, you were a great host. Oh, thank you. I think it went, I, I, think it I, went really good. Yeah, you never know where you're going to go. I, I didn't think we'd end up like really getting into the tattoo thing, but it just was the vibe. Right. And uh, you tell me that story about going rock bottom, man. Holy man. Because I've had a couple of spiritual experiences myself, so kind of in tune to that a little bit. So um, I get it. <laughs> I get it. Right. You can't really understand it. You can't really totally explain it. And it's almost as if like people almost have to have had like some small or some experience like that to really like kind of like say, oh, yeah, I had one of those. I get it. So um, what a gift. What a gift you are to the world, man. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So I'll let you know. We'll probably get this out in about a month, I'm thinking. Okay. And, oh, I guess I should probably ask you real quick, because this might be a, a quick little tidbit on the podcast. So Luis told me the story about the drive-by. Right. And so I, what's you, like, real quick, like, what's your side of the story? Um, like, 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 you know, why were you going to do it? And like, sort of like the things that, motivated you at the time i'm thinking i guess we were just look it was more random from from my experience we were just looking for you know somebody to shoot you know and it just so happened that the weeks was uh you know standing right there with right by the guy that i shot so uh you know Really weird situation. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. how do you guys become buddies? Well, because um, you guys are rival I mean, gang members back in the day. Right. But you're both artists. Yeah. Right. And but uh, I I somebody gave me his book Always Running, and I read it, and he had me in the book, you know, and. Um, I was uh, kind of amazed with that. And then when my son was going to uh, Fairfax uh, High School, uh, Luis went over there and spoke, and I sent a message to my son to tell him, I said, hey. And then and then later on, he contacted me. <clears throat> and, uh, and we had a great talk. And then once I started, you know, doing the book, you know, uh, Steve was really impressed with uh, uh, his writing. And, uh, you know, so we contacted him and we went out to his Tia Chucha's and, and, uh, and, you know, we, we became uh, really good friends. You know, he helped me along on this journey of writing this book and he wrote the foreword for us and he's just a great guy. And it's amazing that we had that, <laughs> that story where we would have killed each other at one point in life, you know, yeah, now we're so <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, he was telling about, like, then he kind of figures out it was you. That's <laughs> just a weird turn of events. Um, well, thank you once again, Friday. 
Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you once more to Freddie Negretti, Steve Jones, and Luis Rodriguez for sharing their time with us. To learn more about Freddie, check out Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, in stores now. We also recommend Luis Rodriguez's book, It Calls You Back, An Odyssey Through Love, Addiction, Revolutions, and Healing. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.